how to sit down now. How do you follow the introduction? <laughs> Good evening, sisters in sobriety. I'm Judy Love, grateful alcoholic. So, oh my. Oh my. That's a whole lot of Judy. <laughs> Hooray for Hollywood. That's all I can say. So I want to thank the committee for inviting me. It's um, not just a privilege and an honor, it is a great responsibility to be asked to share in my opinion because I have been since the moment I was asked to get here and to share with you. Um, I began to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning with the best talk you've ever heard. Many of those thoughts have been rattling around all the way up to this table tonight, so if we can just make any of them go in the right direction, I'll be really grateful. So before I start that, I would appreciate it if you'd just take a deep breath with me and, and ask our higher power to join us this evening and see what needs to be said. Thank you. So I have thanks to the committee, and I want to thank somebody we often forget, and that's our tapers, who spend a great deal of time making this happen as well. Um, you know, I'm a fortunate woman. I have sponsees, ex-sponsees, friends, no ex-friends that I know of in this room tonight. Um, I'm, I'm truly blessed with knowing many of you over having been here for a number of years. Um, my involvement with this conference started in Dallas. 19 years ago this weekend. And three of us have been roommates for 19 years, coming wow. from different places. We have been sponsors, we have been friends, we have been single, we have been married, we have been unhappy, we have been absolutely bizarre, but we are here, and we've yet to have our first disagreement in 19 years sharing a room at the International Women's Conference. <laughs> in 1985, this conference was held, um, in, in, I'm trying to say, in 1985, Carla, our lovely advisory board chair, accepted the big book at this conference as the newest newcomer. And if that's not a witness sufficient for anybody, it really works for me. You know? We show up for service after we get this thing, perhaps, and then we watch us grow. So, um, and if you're brand new and you think this stinks, stick around. We've got more speakers coming up. So, <laughs> you know. Um, I got a call from one of my sponsees from Denver, and... Um, she gave me my piece of advice for the evening, and she says, we share in a general way. Keep it general. We don't want to scare away the newcomers. So, so that's what I'm going to attempt to do. That's my job tonight. Normally, we do this thing in three parts. It's what happened, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. 
and ideally there is a bit of difference between the what I was like before, what happened, and then what I'm like now. And if there isn't any, we're all going to need to go home cause, and get somebody else tomorrow. So I'd like to tell you just briefly where I come from. Um, I'm a native of the Midwest. I'm a Chicago gal. And sisters in Chicago. And I partied hard in Chicago. Um, I made lots of my best mistakes in Chicago, but not all of them. And um, I come from a family there, which like our speaker last night, I had a, a, a father that died when I was 13 after a, you know, a, just a normal average run-of-the-mill kind of family. We didn't even have coffee in my family, much less booze. And um, I'm not sure why that was, but that's how it was. And um, my dad was sick off and on and died suddenly at 13, and my whole family changed quite drastically. But um, in my background, what does seem to me to be significant is that I was raised in Chicago's parochial school system, and uh, I went to mostly girls' schools, and something I feel privileged to have come from. And I was raised Catholic. My mother is an Irish Methodist. My father was an Italian Catholic, and my stepfather was a Russian Jew. <laughs> and I used to say I'm way over-educated in terms of religion, but I want to tell you that what I do know is that when my father died and all of us four ornery, feisty kids hit the streets, you know, it was that stepfather who was the Russian Jew and that mother who was an Irish Methodist that put us kids through their commitment to educate us in Catholic schools. And I learned about commitment and not religious disagreements in my, in my own home. And so I, I have no quarrel with any religion, any religious belief, because my examples of it have been solid. You might say, how the heck did you get to be an alcoholic? Um, all I know is that I'm the only one in my family who's here of my generation. As far as I know, I'm the only one that needs to be here. I come from a really normal sort of family. My mother likes to say she's sure it's on my father's side. <laughs> Got to put it somewhere. I can remember being little. All I can tell you about being little was that I liked to steal because I couldn't tolerate being told no. So I'd take what I wanted rather than ask your permission and take the chance you'd tell me no because it seemed as though I couldn't stand it of a sense of frustration and I would vent that by just taking what I need and whining when I didn't get it because I'm a great whiner <laughs> and when I was a kid my habit was to look behind people and look at the adult people and and I would tell my mother you know some people you can see behind their eyes and some people you can't their eyes are at the front of their and that's as far as you go and I didn't know what that meant and I didn't remember that phrase until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and began to see behind the eyes and see the sparkle and the starshine that's there. Um, I also have one more thanks to give, and, and I just almost forgot that. I want to thank the best host anybody ever had. Darcy's been wonderful to me and made my trip fantastic. Thank you. So, I had a goal to be a doctor, um, not your average doctor, of course. Um, I had a goal to be an, uh, an organ-playing doctor in the wilds of Africa who would save the continent. 
there was somebody like that, and he was a model. Short of that, it was Indira Gandhi or, you know. <laughs> but it was basically, I went to um, school intending to be a doctor when I was 17 years old. I was headed off to college having very little drinking experience. And we all got together, we girls, pretty sheltered in my little neighborhood, my little Italian neighborhood, and hadn't had a whole lot of experience. But I had a, a little non-addictive 20-year diet pill habit going on, and um, I was thin, and I was snappy, and <laughs> and I could talk fast and stay up late. <laughs> and the very first chance I got, we all walked into a bar because I'm a bar drinking kind of drunk. And we walked into a bar, and I had on my red dress. It didn't fit quite the way it does tonight, but it was a nice fitting red dress. And I walked into that bar, and behind the bar and behind the bottles, you know how they shine where the lights hit them? And there's the bottles on the bar, and there's a mirror behind it. And I walked in with my illegal ID that my sister had shaved the date off and fixed. And I walked in, and I walked up to the bar in my red dress. And I walked over to admire myself in the mirror. <laughs> and within two weeks, my entire life changed. Um, I chased that feeling of that red dress for about 20 years. Uh, it was a good day. Uh, <laughs> it was a good day. Uh, you know, our book says that alcohol is but a symptom of our problem and, our, and, and even though it's a symptom, we do have to have the symptom in order to get to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, but it's a symptom of other things, which is why this book that you see right here on your screen, fourth edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, is a book. If that were not the symptom, if this was just an issue of quitting drinking, we'd have a one-pager we'd hand out to all you on coming in and we'd say, don't drink. <laughs> But for some of us, it goes a little beyond that, doesn't it? <laughs> there is a rumor around that, and, and I'm hearing it from a detox center that I visit from time to time. There's a rumor that relapse is part of recovery. And it's being told professionally. And I just want to say that my sobriety date is August 17th of 1982. And from that day to this, I have not had to take a drink or find an excuse to take a drink. Now, I can't tell you that I walked into that bar in my red dress and I said, oh, I can't start drinking without developing the symptom of alcoholism. And I certainly didn't say to myself, oh, the fact that I love to drink the way I do when I get here certainly is a symptom of the phenomenon of craving. <laughs> what I did was say, wow, I'm good. I'm taller, I'm prettier, I dance much better. And I love how it feels. I had been drinking vanilla previously, and that was about as far as you get when you're a kid, vanilla and a little turpenhydrate for the bronchioles. And um, that was about as much as I'd ever had, so I discovered something that really worked for me. The thing is that if you're not alcoholic, alcohol doesn't work. 
That's the amazing thing. If you're not alcoholic, most of the people in my family, they go around and they say, hmm, I've had this and I didn't like what happened, so I'm not going to do it again, and then they don't do it again. So I'm 17 years old and I've got my first bar experience and I'm in school and I love school. And I must tell you, I love school. I felt in college like for the first time something had begun to click for me as a person. Uh, it was stimulating. It opened up my mind. It was creative. I worked hard. But I walked into that bar in September of that year and I fought hard for C's all year long because within a couple of weeks I'd worked up from my first bar date to about four days a week and within the end of the year you know 14 months later um, I school just simply wasn't in the plan I had begun to change I had begun to change my my directives just a little um, it was more like I was watching things happen and this isn't about consequences but I used to think that I drank as a non-alcoholic because I didn't have consequences when I was that young girl. I was dancing, having a really fine time. I ignored completely the fact that my non-consequences, including, uh, well, I never had a driver's license until I was 30, so getting arrested for driving drunk when you don't have a license, um, getting raped, getting beating, beaten up once, um, uh, having your life completely turned. I was like the Queen Mary, you know, I walked in and I was so clear as to where my target was and within just a couple of weeks, the boat was turning towards a whole different shore. And I never could figure out that that's what I was doing, but I was going there instead of where I meant to go. And I never knew and never said to myself, my goodness, I'm developing the phenomenon of craving. <laughs> I can't drink to overcome this phenomenon that is beyond my control. What I said was, he did it, they did it. Something else is the problem. Anything is the problem. Because I think we're all rational people at some level. Drinking isn't rational, but we're rational people. So what we're always trying to do is to take whatever's going on and to make it make sense. Pardon me? They can't see me over there. I'm so sorry. I don't know how to fix that. They scare me. I will try to fit, speak into the microphone. I thought she said to fit into the microphone. <laughs> And I was, I was really impressed. <laughs> She's quite a host. <laughs> uh, so within the year, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do about the baby and where I was going to get a job and all that kind of thing. And, and the dreams had changed. And now it was, could I get a job at the local department store because I didn't have any skills? And I began to get alienated from my family and all that kind of thing. Shortly after that... I uh, married the first man that passed my path that was the right height and, and um, looked as though he wanted to marry me and so we, we did that rather quickly after the baby from someone else was given away. And that's a really significant thing in my life but I just don't want to dwell on that time frame. It's more significant later. I had a lot of years of adventures. I began to have babies. I tried very hard to control my drinking and I did to some extent. When I was pregnant I seldom drank. When I drank, what I noticed was that when I drank, I drank. I thought that meant that you weren't an alcoholic because when you're drinking, you drink. When you're not drinking, you're not drinking. Marriage didn't work so well, um, and I'm now with four children, 
and um, I had a bunch of adventures as the marriage began to disintegrate because what I am as a bar drinker is that when I drink, I don't go home. I forget about that part. Um, and so I'm calling from home, getting babysitters to get babysitters and making up excuses and, and you know, the rings coming off and on and all the stuff that goes with that. And, and uh, pretty soon I'm a divorced alcoholic bar drinker with four kids to support and no visible means of support. And I went through about, from that point on, about seven years of increasing despair and increasing change and a downhill plunge. And that's just the way we are when we drink. It doesn't go up generally. Um, <laughs> and we were in desperate poverty. The last several years, a number of consequences happened that I didn't think were related to my alcoholism. I thought they were related to the world political system. I thought they were related to male dominance. I thought they were related to no economic opportunity for women. I had all kinds of reasons that made sense in my head that defined the world and made it make sense. Things that a sixth and seventh step have had to help me put back together later. But uh, with all of this, what I began to do was to have about once a year a grand wake up. That included the driving accidents, one of which was driving over my youngest child. Um, I had a license by this time. Um, we had a house fire one day when I was off visiting with um, my drinking neighbors and my children were at home raising themselves as they did most of the time and we had a house fire. My children were not injured. I had a lover who committed suicide and I couldn't tell my husband about it previously. That was difficult. Um, I thought it was the love that was so beyond the pale that we could intuitively understand each other. Well, we'd have to now, but it was... I didn't realize for years that that lovely affair was soaked in scotch from beginning to end, and neither one of us knew what we were doing. But what happens with all that stuff is that you don't take it. You don't go talk about those kinds of things. What you do is you find reasons to justify it and have everything make sense. What we get out of that and the price that we're paying that we don't even know, and I didn't know, was that I am alienated from myself and I am separated from you. Frankly, I majored in, in finding men who were otherwise committed, and um, it was kind of what I did. Uh, and I didn't do that deliberately, it's just what happened. Um, it happened everywhere. And, um, <laughs> and, and in my form of explanation is I was disappointed with life, I was disappointed with God. I was disappointed with family. I had prayed to God. I have been trained in prayer, and I've prayed to God all of my life. And what happened was God did not bring to Judy what God needed to bring to Judy. You know, I have found out since that if you pray not to be pregnant, you better start early. <laughs> it's a really good idea to start, like, at that end of it. Um, so I'm bitter and I'm disappointed because God has not answered my prayer. My, what I took out of that, you know, we take out of stuff. We, we may take things out of context even. It's been known to happen. But I made sense out of my world in this way. Everything that happened in my world, I'm always trying to invent the way and the order in which things happened. And what I have since learned is what I'm usually inventing is fantasy. We have a different word for it here. But at that time, I was trying to invent it. And so what I have done is recreate my life. And by the time I get here, my life's recreation, as Judy understands it, is a reality for me that I'm acting on. And I'm acting on this reality all the time. It may have nothing to do with reality. 
but it's the reality that I'm coming from. It's like I need new software or something, you know, like I'm trying to do the wrong program here. But it's the one that's running. It's the one that runs between my ears. So I'm disappointed. I'm alienated from my family. My children are adolescents, and all of life has begun to get really pretty rocky. Um, I'm really fortunate in that nothing serious happened to my children, but they were adolescents of a really neglectful mother. Um, I'm not a violent mother particularly, but a very neglectful mother. I raised them by the telephone. I was not home. I couldn't go home. I told you that. Can't go home when I drink. And I I never drank much at home. So I I wasn't home. And my children, they're they're close in age. Um, When the youngest was born, the eldest was five, and there's four of them. So, and I lost a couple in the middle. So um, I was real busy there for a while, and, and we were desperately poor. Um, it's hard to work when you're a bar drinking drunk. And it, no matter what you do, it's hard to drink for me and produce an income. And I was the sole income producer of my family for a lot of reasons. And um, my children suffered from not getting the things that they had the right to have. They had the right to a whole family life and a style and some consistency and emotional support. And what they got was, can't you see how hard I'm trying? You people are making me crazy. And that's kind of my attitude towards all of life while I'm doing this. That's what I brought to the table. I have friends that brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1981. And they said, come on with us to a meeting. Just come on along. You can drive. So I, they moved on and I stayed, is the truth of it. Having never even looked at my drinking or my alcoholism, they moved on and I stayed. And I stayed there and did exactly what I'd been doing in the bars. I hit on all the men. <laughs> it was like I'd found a new bar. <laughs> now, my red dress didn't fit anymore, but... <laughs> The reason for that wasn't entirely my fault. Um, We had a veterinarian that was prescribing the neighborhood diet pills, and they'd really made them illegal, and one of the neighbors was kind of giving him extra comfort so that we could all get all of our pills, and they made them really illegal, and so the the supply was cut off, and so so was Judy's source of, you know, slim well-being. And... They brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous and I began to watch you and I watched you and my life changed. I began to start looking at people and saying, are these people for real? Are they trustworthy? And I went to a club and I don't know if any of you go to clubs. I don't go to clubs now so much, but but I went to a club and we had more drama per square inch than you would believe going on. Um, I was getting to where I was going to a meeting at night. We had our longest timer was going to kidnap his grandson because they could... There was romance and finance and God knows what. People were cutting hair in the bathroom and doing cars repairs in the driveway and, and it all looked good for me. You know, I was, I was perfectly happy. I came to AA for every day, every evening, the 8.30 meeting, smoke billowing out the door. Um, you couldn't see, your eyes would water. I came to AA every evening at 8.30 for that meeting. And they used to say people were, um, they're doing 13-stepping, and I'm mad because they're not 13-stepping me. 
Like, what's wrong with me? Doesn't everybody want a drunk woman with four adolescent juvenile delinquents? Who's crazy, who hasn't got a penny and doesn't at this point have a car and has to be driven home to meetings, who's absolutely out of her gourd. Well, that's where I was. And one day somebody walked into this meeting and he said, I have to tell you, so that's where I was, like a moment in time. And a man walked into a meeting who came from a downtown club where they had something we call the God Squad. (laughs) And this man looked around the room and I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm sort of, I belong to all this stuff, you know. I, I, I sort of hang out here. And he looked around the room, and I thought he was looking at me, but maybe he wasn't. And um, he said, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is where you recover from alcoholism. Now, if you're here because your problem is gambling or weight or any one of lots of addictions, you are welcome here because this is an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we hope you can take something that you need. But you won't identify because this is Alcoholics Anonymous. And we talk about here the recovery from alcoholism. And I looked around the room and I thought, I bet that means we don't drink. (laughs) I'd never heard them say that before. (laughs) It was brand new news. So I went home to do that. I was going to be one of the team, you know, I know how to show up. And I liked you guys and I was having a good time. And two weeks later they dragged me to a doctor because I thought I was having a nervous breakdown. And um, two things happened. I walked into my meeting and my friend Patsy was sitting in that meeting. Woman of my heart. And I raised my hand at the meeting I'd been attending for a year without so much as saying my name because I had had an spiritual experience that showed me exactly what the truth was and pulled the last little bit of lies out of my life. I won't go into all of that, but you'll have to trust me that it was a spiritual experience that brought me information about my life that I did not have until that moment. And at that point, I raised my hand and and I felt as though I was here. And that was as good as it got for being here for a while. It was it was still kind of a lie, but I came and I brought the body, and I brought a willingness, and I began to understand that there was something more going on here than hitting on the boys. It was brand new information. Something more going on here than dramatic entertainment. <laughs> and I started going to meetings and listening very differently. I have never been one who is able to take a lot of advice. There have been three people in my life that I've taken, in my sober life, that I've been able to take advice from. One of those is the lady sitting right here, my friend Patsy. And one of those is a gentleman at that club who looked down the steps and said, find somebody to talk to for two weeks. I'll see you when I get back from my cruise. And about 10 years later, I found somebody who also brought me to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in a new and different way than anything I'd ever experienced. Every one of them, the three people I've trusted with my life. So. What began to happen was that for a while, 
I began to fall in love a little differently, and I fell in love again in another year. And I was talking the talk, and I was not drinking, and I was doing everything, and a couple of years went by, and I've fallen in love, and everything's everything. We're all wonderful. He's wonderful. He's brand newly sober. I'm a year. I'm just past him a little bit. And um, it's perfect. God sent him. Um, he was the second one God had sent. The first one was a mistaken message. <laughs> but, the, uh, but God sent this one for sure. And we went off in our happy land. We were pretty thrilled to find each other, and we were trying hard to do it differently and to be good to each other and to do all the stuff that you talked about. And to cut it to the chase just a little bit, what happened after a couple of years was that I was so enamored of you and Alcoholics Anonymous and him and the program that I had hit a bottom where I didn't think I could live because for the first time something had begun to happen and that something was that I'd run out of grace. Maybe some of you have run out of grace too. I had grace enough to get me from here to there and that was as far as I got until the next thing happened and then I had grace enough from here to there. And it began to occur to me that we're talking about all these steps. I've been talking about these steps forever. I've been sponsoring people for a couple of years. And I thought if you were reading those steps on the wall, that you were doing those steps. It had never occurred to me that there were actions associated with them that I was supposed to do. That was brand new information one more time. So... A couple of years into this thing, a few years into this, um, there was a gentleman. I was hanging with a, a pretty good crowd of, of AA people. They were um, uh, folks that we'd all gotten sober together and, and we'd all gotten crazy together. And, and we really were working on trying to be better Alcoholics Anonymous members. And we didn't go to any group consciences because you know how politics are. And, and uh, we didn't want to be too much Nazis on this thing because people wouldn't like us. And I hadn't had a spiritual experience that was worth a hoot. And you know, just doing the best I can. And somebody came up to me and he said, um, and I'm dying inside and I knew it. I had run out. We just reach a point where you run out and there's no more to draw on because I didn't have any depth. I had no substance to attach to the words I knew. We could throw around words with each other forever, but I had no substance. And this man said, well, you know, we're doing a big book study in Denver. It's almost an hour from my house. It was winter. We're doing a big book study in Denver, and I would like to invite you to come. I said, well, you know, I can't. I go to work at 7.30. The big book study's at 6.30. I can't get to work in time. Not possible. And he said, you know, don't worry about it. This group is so enthused that they will move it up to 6 o'clock in the morning so you can come. So, we get in the car, quarter to five in the morning, and head an hour off to our little big book study. Any of you who are my sponsees who are in this room, you know about the 6 and 6.30 time slot at my house. Well, it came right from there. You're wide awake about 6.30 in the morning, and you're putting a little effort into getting sober, as, as we began to get. And, and this book, this book, our book, our textbook, our beautiful book, began to come alive when we started the, the blank pages and we started going through it. And, and we even got to go through the part where it said things like, ask yourself what these words mean to you. And I'm asking myself what these words mean to me. 
First time. I've been sober a while. I thought I had sobriety because I wasn't drinking. But not drinking isn't what was going to hold my life together. I had, um, I had begun to have lots of problems as the result of my years with my children. And I'm trying to work steps, and life began to change. And from that moment, um, by the time 1991 came along, um, we were all told at the end of that big book study that it was now our job to go take that big book to other people. So I gathered up all my sponsees, and we started going through the book, and we started doing it right the way I'd been taught, not missing a beat, and things began to come alive. And my life began to change. And I understood that there was a fourth column to the resentment inventory. And I began to understand. I began, you know, I was five years sober before I made amends to my ex-husband. Um, and, and I was told quite clearly that there were two sides to that charge of that all the resentments that I had against him. I did get to finally look at me. I was sober a lot longer before I was able to make amends to my mother. And... From that point on to this, life has been different. So that's the essence of that whole piece of recovery. So I want to tell you what happened after I began that. My sobriety started later than some, both chronologically as well as later with you. I mean, I just didn't get it for a really long time. And you know, no you know, keen alcoholic intellect here. Um, but what I began to understand was that I had entered a fellowship, a fellowship of the spirit of men and women who were going to die if they didn't do something really different. And my life had to change, and I had to have a psychic change. And that meant that it was a revolutionary change in attitude, ideas, and driving forces in my life. And those revolutionary changes that began to take place in my life happened piece by piece in your company. And we women began to do some big book studies, and we'd never done that before. And my sponsees began to do women's big book studies. And we began getting well together. And we began to feel not like competing members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we began to feel like sisters. With no competition, no jealousy, and no need for separation between us because we were people who had been entrusted by God to carry a message to somebody who wasn't going to get it any other way. And we began to feel the very things that I'd wanted ever since I was trying to go off to the wilds and become a famous doctor. Um, I just hadn't figured out about going to school. But I had all these great intentions because why? Because what do all of us want, really, whether, whether we're old or young, male or female, wherever we're from, what we want is pretty much the same thing. We want a roof over our heads. Some are bigger, some are smaller. We want a meal. Some are better, some are minimal. Some don't have sugar. Um, <laughs> we want some people to love and a purpose and meaning in our life. And I've been looking for that my entire life. And you offered it to me and I went, you want me to do what? <laughs> it's the very thing I've been looking for since I was a kid. And in turn for a bottle and a hangover, what we've been given is it says the keys to the kingdom. I've begun to find the very things that I had been looking for since I was a child and the very things that made drinking necessary in my life in order to live within my own skin. My drinking had gotten quite a bit worse. I don't want to talk about symptoms. I don't think alcoholism is carried by your consequences. I think alcoholism is in the body and in the mind and in the spirit. But it's got to do with what happens to me when I drink and what I think. And I've had to come to you for repeated treatments and repeated healing over a period of years, and we've grown together. 
So I want to tell you a little bit about what have been some of these deals as we've gone along, because you know it changes, life changes. We're here today, I don't know what's the deal going to be next year, uh, right now we're all talking about spirituality, and um, when I came in we were all hypoglycemic, <laughs> and um, everybody was hypoglycemic. And, um, and then we had our inner children were being running around, and I've been looking for my inner adult most of my life. And I fell in love and I found I was codependent. And, you know, so we've gone through whatever. The train comes through every now and then, but isn't it fine that Alcoholics Anonymous just keeps chugging? And it isn't a fad, and it isn't a quick thing. Alcoholics Anonymous just keeps coming around the mountain, you know, on that train that we're on together. <laughs> we began a spiritual journey, you and I. I didn't know it when it had begun. I sort of caught on later, but we began a spiritual journey. And I began mine more clearly when I began to understand our book and what it meant to us and what we have been given, this incredible gift and this incredible miracle. My adolescent children were juvenile delinquents. I had my house surrounded by fish and wildlife, if you can imagine. I had more, every date I ever had had to take me to a police station somewhere to pick up one of my boys. Um, it was really kind of a, uh, an exciting time. And, um, and, and I kept thinking, what's a... What's a nice gal like me doing at another police station, forgetting completely that I'd been arrested three times in the same day when they were kids um, and all that sort of stuff. I was pretty horrified when I saw their behavior reflecting some of mine. And somewhere after I was sober about five years, one of my children was caught on, on top of a, a business with malintent. And, um, and, and they, I had made a promise to the God of my understanding that if God would get him to me, I would get him to treatment because he was dying. And um, I got him to treatment that night. I refused to take him in, um, and the police had to deal with him, and they found him a place to be. And, and one of you was at that treatment. It wasn't treatment center. It was actually a nut house. And um, one of you was at the nut house carrying a meeting in, and he was 15 years old. And he knew that one member of Alcoholics Anonymous was not a paid staff and one nurse was an Al-Anon. And between them, they carried a message to him. He did not get sober at 15. But 10 years later, when that boy did get sober, what happened was he knows that the hand of AA was there at the very worst part of his life. And when it got worse, he was the one that walked in the door with tears in his eyes because he knew where to come. It's a special gift because that boy's 12th a birthday of today. Thank you. Thank you. We don't sponsor our own kids. So, you know, what do you do? I'm a dropout. I've been driving the wrong way on Eden's Expressway in Chicago, watching six lanes of traffic coming at me, wondering how'd that happen? When did I learn to drive? And, um, and I get sober and I start having car accidents um, for the first time. <laughs> 
I fall in love, the dream's complete, right? I have a job, I have the man, God brought him, the kids are going to get better. And we did okay for a while. We had a a two-job family, and we had uh, a lot of good things that went on in our life. Unfortunately, um, or fortunately, uh, life is composed of a whole lot of different component parts. And so a few years back, um, when I was doing my my amends, I I need to tell you this story before I move on. One of the biggest things that happened in my life was the child I gave away. I had been deliberately kind of set up for something, and I participated fully with my drinking. But my anger only knew that I had been a victim, and I'd worked on my inventory and resentments, and I'd worked on my program as hard as I knew how to do, and I never could find a way to forgive this man and move on. And because of that, it was like somebody had nailed my foot to the floor. I could not advance. I could not get better. And I could not make a space where God could come into my life. So one year, we had a ninth step meeting that met at our house just for a year. I think it met. They didn't know it, but they were meeting to help me get through my ninth step. And um, we would all talk a little bit and make commitments. And we would say, this week, I'm going to tackle X or Y or Z. Some of us spent six months color coordinating our men's. Um, so, you know, and, uh, and somewhere along in there, I was trying to explain to them my difficulty in letting go of this terrible anger that I had against this man who had fathered this child that I gave up. And, and it, was a, it was a very bad relationship in anybody's sense of the word. It was a bad thing. And I'd been pretty scarred, and a whole lot had happened. But in those days, you didn't just have a baby, you know? I'm an old lady now, and in those days, you didn't just have a baby. So I gave the baby away. I made all the arrangements myself, all of the arrangements. I uh, did the way I wanted to do things. I gave him to people I had selected under my own conditions. I used a false name. I protected myself. I uh, didn't want anyone to bring shame to my family name. I've been using it from a podium ever since, but at that time. So um, I spent about eight years after, oh, so I'm sitting in this amends meeting and there's a little voice that comes in the side of my head that says, why don't you try paying your mother back the money you owe her? It's like, who said that? What money? What mother? You know, that kind of thing. And what's that got to do with it anyway? You know how when we go to make amends, suddenly the dollar, we have a real good intention, but the dollar is stuck in the pocket, you know, and we can't quite pull it out and hand it to anybody. So um, I've, I heard that, and I began to make amends to my mother. Uh, somebody had written pages after pages about, and it was all her fault before it was the political system. And, um, and, and she just didn't do right by me. She just didn't. She didn't give me what I needed, what I wanted, when I wanted it. And, um, and that was wrong. And so um, she didn't give me a lot of approval for some of my behaviors either. And she said people that drank before noon were probably alcoholics. And we had lots between us, my mother and I. And um, by the time I made my amends with her, I had been struck by the sadness of what is a woman who is a widow at 40 with four kids expect when she raises those kids what might she want and deserve and I got oh how about do you deserve a kick in the teeth from one of your kids you've loved and done everything to or is there any way that I can give this woman back some respect 
get rid of the separation and love her. And I want to tell you that through the grace of Alcoholics Anonymous, when that woman died, she lived with me during an operation, and I was the only one who could say a eulogy because I had done my stuff that you taught me to do. And when my son... I had no idea how powerful my mother would be in my life, and she's been incredible. I learned to listen to women. And it was at my mother's side that I learned about the eloquence of courage. And there's so much of it, uh, uh, of it in us. There's so much depth in women. So I gave away this child, and I thought, this child needs me to find him. And, um, and I began doing that. I began an investigation and a search that took about five years and hired somebody and talked to somebody at one of the conferences, because a lot of us have got those kinds of stories. And I did everything I knew how to do to get a hold of this guy. I knew it was a guy. I knew when he was born. I knew the family he was given to. Um, and I couldn't find anybody. And after about five years, we did locate him, and I got to do my amends, and you told me what to do, and you told me how to do it. And I talked about this at meetings for a long time, and I explained very carefully as I went through each phase and each step, because I always think in my head that I know what I'm doing. Any of you have that problem? I always (laughs) think I know what I'm doing, and my motives are really clear, and my intentions are good, and I think God and I are marching as one. But I lie to myself, and I believe what I say. <laughs> so I, um, I wrote him a letter as part of amends, and you have taught me that I cannot bring greater harm by doing my amends. So I wrote him a letter explaining what I knew and that maybe he was the child I had given away. And um, I sent this letter to him. And then I took a quick trip to Chicago area and got a car and rented it and drove around his house. But I didn't tell him or have to come in. Um, I just, um, you know, I was pretty obsessed with it. And I told my group, you know, I'm really okay. God and I are one on this. Um, However this works out, it's going to be just fine. I'm strong. We're, We're graced. We have spirit. And when I came back from that trip, um, he called on a Sunday afternoon and um, he s- announced who he was. My heart stopped. And he said, you know, he's done a lot of looking through all of his papers and looking through his family stuff and he's never been told that he's adopted and he doesn't believe it now. And then he said, and even if I were, frankly, I don't need to meet you ever. I don't need to know you. I'm complete. I like my family. And I have been telling everybody how complete I was with this and how okay it was, God, and I have it understood, and regardless of the results. Thank you for all of your help and your work that I didn't have to cause harm, uh, that I got to do an amend the best way I could that left the fact that I can live through this. You know, I can live through this, and, and the God of my understanding has given me strength I never had before I got here. Um, it's strength to even make mistakes. And, and what happened with this was that I was curled up in a fetal ball on the couch, just like I was when I was expecting him. And I was just in a ball. It was about four years ago. And within a couple minutes, my phone rang. And it was a man who had gotten sober at the club about five or six years before I did. And um, Bob called, and he said, "Um, Judy, 
I need to tell you something. I said, what, Bob? I'm a wreck. I haven't felt this bad in, you know, 15 years. And he said, I'm at the hospital with my wife. She's had a stroke. And I want you to know that if you never thought you mattered in anybody's life, that you matter in ours. If you never thought you had an effect in anybody's life, you have had an effect in ours. Eileen can't remember her own name, but she remembered yours and she would like a hug. And I rolled my eyes and I said, okay, I get it. I get it. So the message that's loud and clear to me, it's a loud, clear message, is that God gave me the ability to love through you. God restored my willingness to be able to endure a little more pain through you. God taught me how to be compassionate through you. And God will choose who I get to give that back to through you. So two things and then I'll close. I have no idea. I've probably gone on for hours. Um, One thing, will AA be here for the children? I want to tell you that if my children, your children, anybody's children are going to want to get sober, we got to know that they're going to go someplace where they're going to hear a message of Alcoholics Anonymous and hope and recovery that's as solid as it was when we walked in. And that is our responsibility because it is in our care. We cannot pretend that they are in New York and we, in my homework group, are here. We are interconnected and we have to pay attention and we have to care and we have to put some money in the basket and we have to link arms and put aside all the other stuff because we don't know who's saving the next spot for the next person and if it'll be there when your best loved person needs it you got to know that there's a place to send them that's going to give them the right message the right message being one of hope and recovery that's all i'm saying not the right politically correct message um so you know what we get to do is we each get to row in this thing we get to row when it's your turn to row and you get to stop rowing when it's your turn to rotate We have this wonderful thing here, if you're new, it's, a, it's a, something I've been trying to define in my head for a long time, and it's called, in my head, something like servant leadership. There is a lot of leadership in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not a lot of leaders, but there's a lot of leadership. It's going on all over the place, and you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention to it, because it's there. Servant leadership means that we have to take stands and we have to pay attention and we have to care what's bigger than my own little, tiny little view of the world. And then I have to become a servant to something that's bigger than me and let go of it. And I think that's as delicate as trying to figure out how to be attached and detached in my own family, you know? I mean, those are really delicate things to try to figure out. But a servant and leadership go together in Alcoholics Anonymous in one of our very many odd things you know so about four years ago three years ago 
both my husband and I lost our jobs. Um, we had had pretty secure jobs. I got to go where I wanted to go when I wanted to go there, and that was fine. Uh, he was a, an, a bright computer guy with a rosy future behind him, and um, I had. Uh, <laughs> and um, we now have, after a series of time, we now have um, solid commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous and a small construction company. Figure it, you know. I was a building inspector for a long time. Uh, I was unfortunately also the union rep, and um, I was I was right up there on the list to be cut when we cut back, and um, so I got to learn how attached I was to my job. I didn't know that. I'd been telling myself I'm really okay. I'm fine with God. <laughs> well, where's my identity when it's gone? And I got to go through a year of, of pain and grief around that and finally come out the other side. And I'm writing a book. Not about them. Not about us. It's not a recovery book. You, you're all safe. Um, <laughs> we're not going to tell my story in a book. But the deal is that, that and, and this is the importance of that message, actually. The important thing of that message is that I spent my whole life doing things because I was so afraid to fail and didn't know how to do something positive because I couldn't stand the failure that I expected to have happen. And over a period of time from the God I didn't believe in to the God that is in my life that works through me and with me and around me, what has happened is that I've gotten the courage to be able to do something that I might be really bad at. But I'm not a failure because whether I write well or badly, I'm going to write. And you've given me the courage and God has given me the grace to believe that I am not a failure today because something doesn't work out. I'm only a failure if I don't show up, get in the car, and try to make it work. And that's my job today is roll when it's my turn, you know. So I'm writing. We get that kind of courage here only after we have the kind of higher power that works in and through us. Because I'm not a failure for any of those things. I'm a success here. I'm a successful woman who's gone through bad marriage times to better marriage times, who's gone through bad kid times to better kid times, who's been insecure, who's been broke, who's been out of work, and who's had all those different kinds of experiences, none of which have defined me. I'm a drunk, and that defined me. And today I'm a person who would not show up for life without starting the day with a third step with my husband and turning it over because between us we can do what Judy never could do on her own. And I avoided pain at any cost before I got here. That's part of what makes drinking such a good solution. But today I'm also a substitute teacher if they don't fire me. Um, <laughs> It's my brand new job. I'm teaching in a, a Spanish class that doesn't speak English. And to tell you the truth, the first day they gave me math, I didn't understand it in, ma in English or Spanish. It was pretty scary. I'm still trying to find out what recombine means uh, for all you teachers. I'm taking lessons. Anyway, it's all out there, and life is a very different thing than it was when I, when I um, was looking at it five years ago with kind of a plan. 
but I have been graced, I have been blessed. And it doesn't depend on any of those things. It depends on taking what we've got and accepting God's grace and then showing up for what it is we have to do on that side of that piece. Because if we don't, who else is going to do that? Who else is going to be your women's sisters? Who else is going to tell you the truth? Who else is going to encourage you to be and show up and be, you know, all of those things that we've always wanted to do? And know that if it doesn't work out, that I'm not going to die, that i got a God that's in there, and I might go want to hide a little bit out of disappointment or embarrassment if everybody spits on my book. But it's not going to hurt me where it matters because I'm okay with that. At least that's, that's where I think I am today. Uh, I don't think that's a myth. I'm inclined towards that, but I think it's real. So I'd like to end this with just one thing. And, and, and one of my precious mentors used to end his talk, and he died this year. And he used to end his talk with something in, in out of memory for him. I'd like to tell you, if you have not heard that, about Michelangelo. And, and it's the story of, of, you know, Michelangelo, the sculpture. He's out there doing David, you know, ching, 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 ching. And the guy walks along and he said, Michelangelo, that's a beautiful, beautiful statue. How did you know David was in there? And Michelangelo said, well, I didn't. I just chipped away all the parts that were not David. And with us is the willing block of stone, and God is the sculptor. We can achieve and we can become that which God would have us be. Certainly never in my wildest dreams would I have pictured that David was in that block of stone or that I was in my own block of stone. But with God as the sculptor, we need to have the willing block of clay. And that's been our journey. Thank you so much for letting me share.